Well, if you've been with us on this journey through the beginning of Exodus, we've been going for two weeks now, um, you'll, you'll know where we're up to. If, if you're new on this, this is your first week in Exodus, um, the invitation to you is to come on the journey with us. There's a reading, guide that go, a reading guide that goes with each teaching series, so you can be reading it throughout the week. Um, if you were here with us last week, though, you will, you, you'll know where we're up to. Um, Moses, after a pretty reluctant start, has on some level accepted the command or the commissioning that God has given him. God's actually chosen Moses to be the liberator of his people. God intends to bring his people out of slavery in Egypt and he points at Moses and he says, I'm going to use you to do it, mate. And if you are with us last week, Moses tries five times to wiggle out of it. He's reluctant, he's scared. In the end, he really just doesn't want to. Um, there's discomfort in ministry and serving and particularly these types of roles. Um, that he's, but, but finally, he's, it, it looks like he's on track now. It looks like he's accepted the task. And um, at the beginning of chapter 5 or the end of chapter 4, things are starting to look promising for Moses in this role. Um, he's kind of rolling along, he's looking good, he's, his brother Aaron is now in on the mission with him um, and you know, seeming to be excited to go with him. The two of them have gone to meet with the Israelite elders, which Moses was very nervous about, um, but the Israelite elders have accepted that God has met with this guy Moses and they've accepted that God intends to do something big here and they, they believe um, and the end of chapter 4 finishes with these Israelite elders actually worshipping God, joyful and thankful and anticipating that God is about to do a great work. So it's all looking up and up. And Moses is looking confident and him and his brother Aaron are looking bold. And now it's time to go and announce what the Lord God is going to do to Pharaoh. And so Moses and Aaron... I, I get the impression they're just kind of marching into Pharaoh's office with boldness and confidence. And in there in verse 1 of chapter 5, they speak with the authority of a prophet. Look at the language that gets used. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh, he's the king of Egypt, and they said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. So when you start what you say with that kind of a phrase, you're claiming to be a prophet of God, announcing his words with authority. And so that's the way Moses and Aaron begin. Here we are, the prophets. And actually, you could regard Moses, and most do regard Moses, as the first prophet. In, in all of God's people. And here they are bringing God's word to Pharaoh. And I think on some level, they're expecting a bit of a quick resolution to this issue. They're anticipating it. God said, it's going to happen. I'm going I'm to pull it off. And so it's, it's almost like they're pretty confident as they go in and they announce to Pharaoh basically what God says, which is, let my people go. There's, there's a couple of million Hebrews in slavery in Egypt, they're a pretty solid labour workforce that Pharaoh's got there. And um, God just wants these guys to tell Pharaoh, let my people go. Look at it there with me. Um, God says, let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Sounds like a music festival in the wilderness, doesn't it? And I just kind of want to pause on this first um, moment here as, as what is announced is God's going to save his people but there's a reason for it have you considered the reason for salvation 
Have you considered the dynamics of salvation? Because I can actually see two key reasons why Yahweh is going to come and rescue his people and save them. The first reason you actually see back up in verse 31 of chapter 4, where the elders are describing, look what it says there, um, they believed and when they heard that the Lord was concerned about them and had seen their misery, they bowed down and worshipped. Here's the first reason why God is going to rescue his people. He sees their misery. He's a God who hears the cries of his people. He's a God who feels the pain of his loved ones. And because he's a God of compassion, he decides to act to help and to save and to rescue. So there's the first reason you might acknowledge that is behind God saving his people and stepping in to do this massive work that typically does not happen in history. God is going to save them because he heard their cry and he's a God of compassion. And he's made a promise to look after his people too. So he feels the pain of his people and he wants to relieve them of their pain. There's the first reason. The second reason you get there in verse 1, we just read it. He wants to save his people, what does it say? So that, read that language, so that they may hold a festival to me in the desert. So two reasons. First one is to kind of help them in their misery. Second reason is so that they can go out into the wilderness and hold a festival. So the first reason why God is saving is because he's compassionate. The second reason why God is saving, I think it's because he is glorious and he knows he's worthy of worship. Because that's what he means by festival. You know, you go down and there in verse 3 and you see what Moses means by festival and it's not a music festival. It's not just fun and dancing and carrying on. The festival that Moses has in mind here, you see in verse 3, is that they would come out to the Lord God and they would offer sacrifices to him. I mean, earlier in Exodus it says, I want my people to be released so that they would worship me. So this is the second reason that lies behind why God saves. He saves so that his people can worship him and live lives of sacrifice towards him and honour him because he believes that he is worthy of worship. This, if you're not aware, Exodus, everything that's happening here is the Old Testament salvation event. This is the big one in the Old Testament where God saves his people and really it's just the big preview or foretaste of the ultimate act of salvation that's going to come in the New Testament through Jesus. But here in the Old Testament, this salvation event, it previews the New Testament and I think one way of describing why God saves or the purposes for for his huge costly work of saving is this you could describe it like this God rescues from something and he rescues for something catch that so in this context he's rescuing them from misery and from pain he's rescuing them from physical slavery where they're in pain and he's rescuing them for worship he's rescuing them for Offering, worship, sacrifice. He's worshipping, he's, he's saving them, he's rescuing them for worship. From and for. 
And that applies to us here today, this side of Jesus as well. If this is just a foretaste, a preview of the big salvation event, then you can go ahead and trust that God's work to bring salvation for us today through Jesus is from something and it's for something. Have you considered both those things? We are rescued today by the mighty hand of God through his son Jesus and the work on the cross. And we are rescued from slavery, but slavery to sin. We're rescued from the reality of the wreckage of sin in our own lives. We're rescued from the ongoing consequence of sin. We're rescued from the ultimate punishment for sin. You are rescued from sin. You are, if you put your trust in Jesus, you are forgiven of your sin. Your sin gets covered over. God does not treat you as your sins deserve. You're rescued from that life. From a slavery, that's how the Bible describes it, which is an ongoing pursuit of sinful desires in your life that are only going to bring more and more wreckage to you and wreckage to those around you. God's going to rescue you from your sin. Now, some of you haven't spent much time thinking it. Others of you, yeah, that's, that's where you camp out. Rescued from my sin, you've got a good sense of that. But others of you maybe haven't really pushed into that. It's, it's a painful thing to push into, the recognition of your own sin and your great need to be saved from it. Your great need to be saved from yourself, effectively, and your own sinful desires. To put your trust in Jesus is to be rescued from your sin and... To be rescued for worship. You got that one? Rescued for, you might say, sacrifice and offering. But of course, in the New Testament, we're not offering the sacrifice and offerings of animals. You get to offer your own body as a living sacrifice. That's Romans chapter 12, verse 1. In view of God's mercies, Offer yourselves as living sacrifices. This is the life of worship that you are rescued for. And maybe some of you haven't got your head around that yet. You, you understand the concept of salvation for forgiveness of sin and you, you understand you're, you're rescued from judgment forever. But the new life, the whole new life that you've been rescued for is not something you've spent much time thinking about and pressing into. You see, if you've put your trust in Jesus, you've been saved for a whole new life. A life that actually focuses on God. A, folk, a life that actually revolves around him and his desires and his purposes. It's a life where you actually decide, well, I'm actually going to do everything I can to honour him. You've been saved to live the kind of life that actually puts on display his glory, his majesty, his goodness, his faithfulness. That's a life of worship where you offer it all up to put his goodness on display. That is what you were saved for. Some of you might have seen your salvation and the forgiveness of sin like something like a, a bus pass that you pop in your back pocket and you go, awesome, got that sorted, I'll get to heaven, now I'll just get on with my life without realising that you were saved for a whole different new kind of life in the spirit that begins today. 
You know, it's not a life that we simply strain in all your own strength to pull off. Oh, I've just got to honour God and it's just me. No, no, God comes to live in you by his spirit when you put your trust in Jesus. And that is the power that lives in you to enable you to change, to enable you to reorient yourself, to enable you to actually begin a real relationship with God. It's not simply transactionary. This whole Christian thing. It's not simply about getting your sins dealt with. It's not simply about sorting out that transaction so you can just get on with your life. It's about a new experience of the God who made you. It's about a whole new life. You were saved for worship. Now, we worship when we sing. But we worship when we pray. And we worship right now as we listen And we worship when we lovingly connect and bear burdens and pray for each other. And we worship as we get involved in each other's lives and love each other. And we worship right throughout the week as you attempt to honour God in the situation that you're in and live Christianly. And we worship when we try and love our neighbours. You are and I are called to worship all week long. You are saved to worship God and bring honour to him with your life. Salvation is from something and salvation is for something. You got that? Now that's just verse 1, isn't it? We've got a few verses to get through. I won't spend as much time on the rest of them. But that's a big paradigm that you see in Exodus. These guys are saved that they would be able to go out into the wilderness and gather at Mount Sinai at Horeb and, and start to offer sacrifices and receive a word from the Lord about how they are to live. They're saved to get to the mountain. They're saved to get to God and live honouring him. Now back to this event. Though that's a key theme that goes right through Exodus. Keep letting, it, keep letting that bubble up as you work through it. Um, how do you think Pharaoh is going to respond as Moses and Aaron come in and announce that the Lord says, let my people go? Well, the thing about Pharaoh is, he thinks he knows he's the king of Egypt, but he thinks he's God. That's what the king of Egypt thinks. That's why the king of Egypt keeps trying to build more and larger monuments to himself. And some of them are so big and so fantastic, they still stand today. The pharaoh of Egypt considered themselves to be God. So here are some of the people he considers them to be his workforce coming to him, announcing a word from another God, that they want him to obey, look at how he responds, verse 2. He's disrespectful, he's sarcastic. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not even know the Lord and I will not let Israel go. Now, he would, he would know of Yahweh, the God of these Hebrews that are his servants. But what he's saying is, You're kidding me, aren't you? You guys think I'm dreaming? Do you not know who I am? He sees himself as God. He will not obey another God. And the Lord's people should just keep obeying him as God. So in doing this, in saying this, he positions himself for battle with the God of these Hebrews. And that's actually what we see in the book of Exodus. It's a God-off. 
You know, it's God versus God. Let's see who is the strongest. And this is actually what the Lord God actually wants to bring about. And that's where we're going to land today. Um, Moses and Aaron respond to what the king has said um, by threatening (laughs) Pharaoh and giving him a warning. You can imagine how that might go. Uh, He doesn't respond well to threats. Look at verse 3. Then they said, you know, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Um, or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. This is actually exactly what God intends to do, is to strike Egypt with plagues. Um, And the warning comes to Pharaoh here from Moses and Aaron. Um, How does Pharaoh respond? Verse 4, the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you talking, why are you taking the people away from their labour? Get back to work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous and you're stopping, you are stopping them from working. So there seems to be a little bit of a, maybe a temporary strike happening while Moses and Aaron go to Pharaoh with this news. And all Pharaoh can do in this moment is just say, hang on, you guys have stopped working. Which actually takes us right to the heart of what matters most for Pharaoh. It's the work that's happening around him, that's happening for him. He says, why have you stopped working? Get back to work. This is Pharaoh's framework on life. He he sees himself as God. He sees everyone else that they exist to labour for him. And so it's basically just work, 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 no rest. One of the most beautiful things that God brings for his people here as he brings them out of slavery in Egypt is this thing called Sabbath. (laughs) which they'd never experienced for 400 years in Egypt. Because Pharaoh is just, you work and you work and you work. And he would have been like that himself on some level. He would have considered himself, well, I'm a busy man. You know, and he's fixated on the industrious pursuit of building his own kingdom for his own glory and his own power because he sees himself to be God. And so he just wants everyone to get back to work. Because that's what's the most important thing. And here's these people that he considers his own coming to him and say, we're going to take some time off uh, because we want to worship. <laughs> He's like, you work. And, and Yahweh's like, no, my people are going to worship. You know, I love when we get to the, the commands that God gives his people. It's like, no, you take a day off. Don't you dare work every day of the week. Don't you dare live as though everything about life is at the is simply a result of your hard work. I want you to know I'm God. And so you're going to take a day off, at least one. We've taken a little bit further in the Western world. We're like, oh, we'll take two. You know? <laughs> we'll call it a weekend and then we'll have a lot of long weekends and we'll have a lot of long holidays. But God wants his people to rest so that they can worship. Yeah? Now, how does Pharaoh respond ultimately to this request, which is actually a little bit more of a command that's coming from Yahweh through Moses and Aaron? What he does, he says, I'm going to ramp up the work. You guys just stopped for half an hour. I'm going to ramp this up. I'm going to show you who's God. So look at verse 6. He says, That same day Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You're no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. 
So Pharaoh responds. He says, I'm going to show you, basically. I'm going to make you work harder. I'm going to make you work more. He's offended by the request. He's going to teach him a lesson. And he's hoping it will backfire on Moses and Aaron, I think, and that they might turn on Moses and Aaron. That's the best way to unravel any kind of revolt, bring a little bit of disunity in it. So he's probably hoping that they would turn on Moses and Aaron, and they do. Look at verse 8. The way Pharaoh conceives of this request is to come to the conclusion that they're actually just being lazy. That's what this is. Verse 8, he says, um, but require them to make the same number of bricks. They're lazy. This is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. They're just lazy. And he says it again and again and again. You see his framework? Hard work, lazy. He doesn't have this concept of worship. He doesn't have this concept that Yahweh's bringing to the situation. And so he makes an accusation that they're lazy. He's going to make it harder for them. Now, you skip to verse 15 and you see that the Israelite overseers, so there's the Egyptian slave drivers, and then under them are the Israelite overseers who are meant to help keep the slaves working. That They pick up on this command and the overseers think, oh, there must be a mistake here. We're being required to make the same number of bricks, but you're not giving a straw. So the Israelite overseers go to Pharaoh as well and make an appeal. You pick it up in verse 15. Then the Israelite overseers went to make an appeal to Pharaoh. Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we're told, make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Look at how Pharaoh responds. Lazy. That's where you guys are. You're just lazy. You know? Verse 17. Um, this is why you keep saying, let us go and worship. It's because you've asked to leave and go and worship your God that I'm making you work harder. So the Israelite overseers think, oh, okay, this is because Moses and Aaron went and asked. So what are they going to do? They're going to turn on Moses and Aaron. Look at verse 20. When they left the Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting for them, and they said to them, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You've made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and to his officials. You've put a sword in their hand to kill us which is basically going to Moses and Aaron and, and pronouncing a curse from God, like a judgment on them. That's pretty heavy to do that to the prophets of God. But they're basically saying, you've made it worse for us. Now they're just going to kill us. This is not working what you've done. By going to Pharaoh and announcing that we should be... It's not working. It's making it worse. Moses bears that, feels that. What's he going to do with that? They've turned on him. Moses is going to turn on God. <laughs> Everyone just keeps blaming everyone else for this. You know, you want the heat to go elsewhere. Look at verse 22. Look what Moses says to God. It's pretty brutal. Moses returned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak about your name, he's brought trouble on this people and you have not rescued your people at all. <laughs> Can you see the attitude? He's like, is this what you wanted, God? Do you know what you're doing, God? You tell me to do this thing, all it's doing is making it worse. And what have you done? You haven't rescued anyone yet. So he's accusing God of not knowing what he's doing. You're making it worse. 
I want to just pause on this for a moment and step back. God's made a promise here. He's going to rescue his people. And he's made a promise that he's going to be with Moses and Aaron through the whole journey. But he hasn't promised the time frame that it's going to happen in. And he hasn't promised that it's going to go smoothly. You know that song we sang a minute ago? You'll always do what you say you're going to do. You want to be really clear about what God has said he's going to do. Because if you try and hold him to a promise he's never made, you're going to get yourself in a knot and you're going to turn on him and that's going to affect everyone around you's picture of God. So just want to notice this one. God has promised to rescue them. He has promised his presence. But it's not always going to go in a timely way and it's not always going to go smoothly. He's with them. He's going to rescue them. But it's not a guarantee of an easy, brisk according to their time frame, kind of journey. God's promised the outcome, not the particular dynamics of the path to get to it. He hasn't promised that. And the thing is, sometimes God intends and even plans for the path to be bumpy. God actually intends sometimes for hardship on the journey towards his outcome. And this, my friends, is a classic example of that being the case explicitly. Like if you've seen what God has said, what God also has said up to this moment, you'll know what I'm talking about. Sometimes God plans that there's going to be hardship in the journey. Look at chapter 4, verse 21. This is the kind of verse we struggle with, but have a look at it. The Lord God said to Moses, when you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I've given you um, the power to do, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Immediately, I trust. I will harden Pharaoh's heart. How do you go with that one? That God is able to powerfully and sovereignly impact the heart. Now, later on, and there's many evidences that Pharaoh also hardens his own heart. He's responsible for the hardening of his heart. But please do not discount a sovereign God's ability to actually work and intend hardship here. He says, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart. In other words, I'm going to make this harder. It's not going to be a simple command and out you go. No, no, no. There's going to be hardship here. There's going to be strife here. It's actually going to get worse before it gets better. How do you go with a God who says that or a God who may well be doing that in your life? God actually does this in this situation for a very particular reason and we'll get to that in just a minute. Um, if, if God does that today as well, we might not always know the reason. But I, I do want to just kind of just dance with this one a little bit and play with it. God's promises to us are very vivid and there are some outcomes that God promises to us this side of Jesus. He, he promises us that if you come to put your trust in Jesus, you will get eternal life. He promises to be with us um, by the Holy Spirit and with us through the whole journey and keep us to the final day. But he doesn't guarantee an easy, smooth journey for us, does he? He doesn't guarantee just a walk in the park. Sometimes for us, it's going to get worse before it gets better because we have a God who sometimes intends 
hardship for a season. And he does tell us generally why he does that. You know, Romans chapter 8. He does it so that we would grow. Jeez, I wish there was an easier way to grow. <laughs> Do you ever find... I wish I, could grow, I wish I could have been able to and I wish I could in the future grow and change without having to go through hardship. And yet God says, yeah, that's usually the big thing he's intending on hardship that he brings. He's going to grow you. He's going to conform you in the likeness of his son. He's going to make you more like Jesus. So you can go ahead and trust that the hardship you're in right now or the one that's just around the corner is, is, is brought and intended by a sovereign God on a level in ways because he intends for you to change and grow up. He's got some more growing for you to do. And here's the thing. You can trust that God is with you in that dark time. You can trust that God is with you in the valley and in the carnage and that he's working in you and through you. God has not abandoned you. He is no less good or no less faithful when you're going through a hard time. I mean, we sang it before, didn't we? You are good, you are faithful, but if you're anything like me, it's a lot easier for us to say, God, you are good when my desires are being met in a timely way. It's really easy for me to go, oh, God's so good, or God's so faithful. And you should, that should be what comes out of your mouth. But God is no less good and no less faithful when you're going through a hard time, when it's not happening in the time that you want it to happen. He's no less present with you when you're going through carnage. In fact, there's a sense in which God's even more present with you if you'd slow down and notice and pay attention to him being with you in hardship. Oh, he can come and speak and he can comfort and he can, he can, he can help you notice how he's with you in carnage like you'll find it's really hard to notice when things are great. He's wonderful in hard times. You trust him. You can go ahead and trust that he knows what he's doing. You won't always know why he's bringing it. You won't know the reason. Some of us will go to our graves without seeing the reason for some of the hardship that comes our ways. But sometimes you'll see it. And you'll be able to look back and go, oh, I can see what God was up to there. And in this particular circumstance in Exodus, he actually tells us explicitly, yeah, here's why I'm doing it. Here's why I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart and make it harder and longer for my people to come out. Did you pick it up in the reading if you did it this week? It's right there at the start of chapter 6, verse 1. And it's in the response that God gives Moses as Moses has just accused him of not knowing what he's doing and, and told him that everything he's doing is making it worse and he hasn't done anything good yet to rescue. I mean, if I was God in that moment, I would just smote the dude. Is that a right? Is that the word? I don't know. I would just like, who do you think? Anyway, God doesn't. He very gracious. I'm glad I'm not God, right? You would not want me to be God. I'm glad God is God because look at, he's gracious and he responds in a beautiful way, but also in a strong way. Look at verse six, six verse one. Then the Lord said to Moses, now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. What's the phrase that gets repeated there? Mighty hand. So what's the reason for why God hardens Pharaoh's heart? He wants to show his 
mighty hand. And he wants to show his mighty hand because Pharaoh thinks he has the mighty hand. And it's time for Yahweh to stand up against the superpower of the time and show who truly has the mighty hand. The language like that comes right through Exodus. He talks about his outstretched arm. God's going to bring his mighty hand upon Pharaoh and upon Egypt in a way that brings him to his knees and forces him to admit that the Lord, Yahweh, is God. Yeah? That's what God's going to do. That's his reasonings. The ten plagues that come, this is what God is going to do. The reason for the hardship is because God wants to display his strength and his power. Look at verse 2. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as God Almighty. That particular way of God describing himself, Almighty, is is to actually emphasise his strength and his power. And he's saying, this is, I'm the same God that's revealed himself to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob as the Almighty One. And I'm about to reveal myself to millions of people through what I'm about to do because I'm the superpower and Pharaoh is not. Now just pause on this one for a moment before you start thinking, what kind of an egotistical maniac does God think he is that he just wants to show his strength? If he was an average garden variety human or even a Pharaoh type to just want to show his strength, yeah, it's egotistical. But if you are the Lord God Almighty, you're just setting the record straight. You're just actually displaying the truth of the universe, that you made it and you're in control of it and you're all powerful all over it. And he says, this is who I'm going to reveal myself to. God's display of strength is not just ego, it's actually a means of bringing rescue and redemption and good for his people. That's worth noticing. His display of strength is good for Israel. It's good for those who see him as God. Now, ultimately, this foreshadows and previews God's display of his mighty hand through the ultimate act of salvation with Jesus. His mighty arm that stretched out to crush not the power of Egypt, but the power of sin and death. This is what God ultimately does with his mighty hand through Jesus. Colossians chapter 2 verse 15 helps us understand that it's that way. It speaks about the triumph of the cross. It's it's not Jesus being defeated. It's actually a great victory that God has over the ultimate enemy, our slavery to sin. And it's God's mighty hand that brings our rescue. It's God's outstretched arm through the work of Jesus on the cross that brings our salvation so that we today, through Jesus, can be rescued and saved and released from slavery to sin and condemnation and and saved for worship that he is completely worthy of. He's the Lord God Almighty. We worship him with our days. He takes it seriously. We are to give ourselves to him in the power of the Spirit. Let me pray. Father God, we honour you. We bow before you as the Almighty, 
your mighty hand, your outstretched arm through history has displayed your strength and your power and it has meant rescue for your people. And it means rescue for us today through Jesus. Lord, would you help us to love you as Father and honour you as the Almighty? Would you help us to see our salvation, that it's from sin and that it's for worship? And Lord, would you please continue to pour out your Spirit on us in such a way that each day we would grow as worshippers. We would grow as those who sacrifice for the sake of your name. We would grow as those who offer ourselves to you, the one that's worthy, holy, 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 is the Lord God Almighty. Amen.